Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off last time in Genesis chapter 2. If you take your Bibles and open them, Genesis chapter 2, and our Bible study today is entitled, The Perfect Man and Perfect Woman. And last time we were together, we learned of God's perfect rest. We also learned of the perfect garden he created. And in his creation, we're reminded that God gave his best. So by way of review, let's just pick up back in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, where it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. You know, in Psalm 103 verse 14, it says that God knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. And here we learn how God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Man is God's crowning creation. You and I have been created in God's image. And we learned last time that the word formed is used of a potter shaping the clay and implies that God is directly involved in the shaping and the fashioning of man's physical body because man is both physical in his body, but he's also spiritual, made up of body, soul, and spirit. And it's encouraging to me because you and I, men and women, we alone have the ability to communicate with God. We alone have access to the blood of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately and fortunately both, we both need the blood of Jesus Christ and also can receive it. But after Adam's sin, there was immediate separation, as we'll see in chapter 3. And that's why today you and I need to be born again by the Spirit of God to re-enter into this relationship that's enjoyed here in chapter 2. As they're put into the garden to enjoy it, to tend it, to work it, to enjoy one another. But notice, before we get there, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from, where, from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good, bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one which encompasses the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hidekel, or the Tigris. It's one that goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. So God, was, God created man, and he was placed in this perfect environment. And what a beautiful, awesome, luscious, spectacular environment he was given. And what a job Adam must have had, untouched and untainted by sin. There was no competition There was no pollution, no backbiting, no dirty jokes. It it was just vocation, but it was also fulfilling. There was a recreation 
within the vocation. That's God's desire. And then in verse 9, you've got the two trees, and the two trees would prove to be too much for Adam and Eve, as we'll see later in chapter 3. And we get the general location of the Garden of Eden, which in some of the areas we know, in some of the areas we're uncertain. And then in verse 15, it says, Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, as God places man, places Adam, in the garden, I think that as we step back for a moment, we need to understand that here in the garden, God placed limitations on Adam. Now, I know that being limited is not a popular subject today. What is the popular subject today? Freedom. Absolute freedoms. And it's also been interpreted, nobody can tell me what to do. Uh, and especially you can't tell me what to do. And, and it's quite the, the, the human response to limitations. What we hear more about today is freedom. And almost always those that would emphasize freedom, it's almost always emphasized in a wildly selfish way. When someone is emphasizing their freedoms, they're almost always talking about the freedoms that they themselves have, not necessarily the freedoms that you have. Although if it is emphasized, the freedoms that you have, it's always to then support the freedoms that they're talking about, their own freedoms. But God, he places limitations on us, like it or not. We see from the very beginning, God placed limitations upon man for his own good. As any good parent would, as anyone in law enforcement, anyone that has responsibility, understand the value and the necessity of limitations. But from God's perspective, understand this. As creator, it is God's prerogative of how he places limitations on you and me. It's his prerogative. He has the ultimate right to limit our lives as he sees fit. Of course, we're always demanding explanations. We always want to know why. This isn't fair. And on and on the list will go. But it's God's prerogative. It's his desire. He doesn't have to answer to man. He's not accountable to you. We're accountable to him. And where do we find these limitations? Not in church doctrine. Not in a doctrinal statement or in a church history book. The limitations that God places upon his creation are found in his word. And I mean, if you, if you really want to look at uh, a simple reminder, what do you mean, Ed? What are you talking about limitations? Just consider and jot it down in Exodus chapter 20. We have listed out for us what's commonly known as the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions, but the Ten Commandments. And, and you'll find as you walk down and kind of list out the Ten Commandments, Before you get to two, three, or four, you're going to find great guilt in your life. And it's certainly before you get to the top, finish all 10 of them, there'll be a few that you can look at your life and go, yeah, I've surpassed that limitation in my life. I have chosen to go against God's will for my life. But we have to ask ourselves, what is wrong with the Ten Commandments? I mean, can you find fault in the law of God? What exactly is wrong with the prohibition of stealing? Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't lie. What's wrong with those? 
They're good and healthy and spiritual and strong. They help form relationship. They help retain relationship. But lying and stealing and dishonesty and sexual sin and adultery and on and on the list goes, they break relationship. And in the garden, there was a limitation that God placed upon man that was too much for them to bear. But even more so, when you think of the limitations that God has placed, the most important limitation that every man, woman, and child needs to face is the limitation of how a person is saved, how a person has a right relationship with God. I think Jesus would say it best when he said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And what did he say? No one comes to the Father. That's all of us. No one comes to the Father except through him, through me, he says. So the limitation that goes to all humanity is there's only one way for your life to be right with God. There there aren't five, there aren't 10. There's only one way, through faith, in the risen Lord. God places this tree of death in the garden of life and then tells them they couldn't touch it. Why would he do that? You know, that's a common question today. It may not be asked that way, but why would God place something before them and then limit them, Adam and Eve? Why would God allow, put things in our path and then limit us, limit us from participating and enjoying? It's easy to look at that as we saw last time. That's unfair, that's not right. But the tree reminds us, not only of the limitations of God, but the tree reminds us of your powerful ability to make a choice. And and there there is a doctrine of God giving freedom to man. It's not necessarily how it's being used today, but you and I do have freedom. We have the freedom to choose. Or you may say you have the ability to choose between good or evil. God has never and will never force anyone to love him. So so when you think of these trees, you think of God said, you have a choice. You do not have to love God. You do not have to enjoy him. You do not have to follow God. It's your choice. And I say choose wisely. You won't be forced. It won't be something forced upon you. God did not create us as, you know, electronic dolls where we're just mimicking and repeating words that he forces us to say, I love you, God. No, it needs to come from the heart. It needs to become freely and willing. He'll never force you to raise your hands. You know, sometimes as you're giving the instruction during song, there's the instruction, raise your hands. And then some of you know, there's always people, I'm not raising my hands. Well, nobody's going to force you. We don't have forced hand raisers that walk around the room. Nobody's going to force you. You know, the ones that force you to raise your hands, they're robbers, they're thieves. But God, when he has, he says, you raise your hands to me willingly in surrender, and I'll meet you there in that place of surrender. You want to put your hands in your pockets? Go ahead. You you want to hold your arms like this and be frustrated? It's okay, but God has more for you. It's how you'd make your choices. It's interesting, isn't it? Limitations bring on the opportunity to exercise choices. The limitations of God now gives to us the opportunity to make choices. And Adam and Eve in the garden... This is foundational, even to future doctrines, even some doctrines that say you have no choice. 
The sovereignty of God imposes choices upon you. Well, we have to go back before all these doctrines were developed by man and just ask a simple question. Did Adam and Eve have a real choice or not? Because if they didn't have a real choice, the rest of the Bible won't make sense. If the Adam and Eve didn't have a real choice, then the fault of sin lays at the doorstep of God. That there was no opportunity. They were, they were stuck. Because if God made them to make that choice and they had no opportunity to make any alternative choice, then it's God's fault. But we know in the entirety of Scripture, sin is not God's fault. Every man, woman, and child will have a personal responsibility before God. We will stand before the judge. At the, well, for unbelievers, you'll stand at the great white throne judgment. For believers, we'll account for our lives at the Bema seat. So here we learn right in the beginning, as God is unveiling and opening his scriptures, that Adam and Eve had a capacity to choose. Remember in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. But I like the old King James rendering of this, because it says, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And you and I never bring more pleasure to God than we, when we are abiding in Christ, living the life of submitted obedience. It brings God great pleasure, your desire to abide in him. Choice does imply freedom, but a freedom to follow God. There are always those who will spend their entire lives trying to reconcile the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. However, both exist in the scriptures in tension intention then you know you know how it is nobody likes tension nobody likes those tense times so we try to wiggle out of them instead of just okay god i see your sovereignty your creative power and i also see that you have given the uh, awesome opportunity of choice to adam and eve and you know what free will does free will and our ability to make choices they reveal our hearts and I don't know about you, but I'm not always happy what's been revealed in my heart. I have a tendency, and perhaps you can share, to think of myself better at times than I really am. Or, or, or say, put it this way, I think someone put it this way, where you know, I will reach out and judge someone on a set of standards, but I will go easier on myself. That's always a dangerous place to be. It's always a dangerous place to be to stand in the place of judgment. But when I open my heart to be revealed and have my heart revealed, I can see my heart through my choices. I can see where I'm headed. It's like, well, I don't know my heart. It's so it's hidden. You know, I know what the Bible says, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, it, it's got, it, it, is, it is such a, in our world today, just follow your heart. Anytime I hear that, I go, no, don't follow your heart. It's wicked. It's deceitful. It's not always going to tell you the truth, especially when heart, when you refer to your heart as your emotions. You don't always want to follow your emotions. You want, you want to follow the Lord. But I know when I'm making my choices, my heart is revealed. Jesus put it this way. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? Your mouth speaks. And even in the words that we choose to say, our revelation of our heart. But it does drive me to a deeper sense of humility to, to take what we learn in Hebrews to come boldly to the throne room of grace. Because then I'm making cho choices and I make bad choices. 
sinful choices, then I can have revealed to me that need for the grace of God. And I run to him. I don't run away from him. I run to him. Unfortunately, with Adam and Eve, the first thing they do, again, in our study next time, is they run away. So here they are, the garden there, choices are before them. Notice verse 18 now, Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, of course, the context here, as we see revealed, will be in marriage and companionship in marriage. But there's also a spiritual truth that's important to grasp here. Just in the phrase, it's not good for a man to be alone. And that is that it's not good for you as a believer to isolate yourself and be alone. And there have been habits created in the last couple years with the pandemic and the decisions and the fear and the concerns and the high-risk health and all of it put together where some have just gotten used to being alone. They've just gotten used to it. What started out as necessity, what started out as uncertainty, has now become a two, two and a half year habit. And you just become, and perhaps it's just what you guys listening on the radio or watching online right now, it just becomes, it's just become a habit for you. But it's not good for man to be alone. It's not wise for us to isolate ourselves. It's important that we recognize that As one person once said, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing of going on this alone. And I'm going to go on my own. I'm going to trek my own path. And I'm going to live, you know, as we saw in our previous study this last weekend, you know, I don't want to deal with hypocrites. I don't want to deal with difficult Christians. I'm just going to go at it alone. I don't need anyone. So are those today that shun churches saying, I don't need that. I have church at home. I got my dog here, my hot chocolate. I'm watching on YouTube. I don't need it. I'll tie it to myself. And, you know, knowing that attitude would be among men, God just puts it very early on, even in the aloneness of Adam, for, the, for, for us to hear now. It's not good for you to be alone. God has created you for community. Hold your places here. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 10? It was a familiar, often used passage over the past few years by many people. We were studying through Hebrews not too long ago, but it is an important one, uh, whether it's related to the pandemic or not, whether it's related to, um, you know, that idea is I, I just don't need to be, like it's one thing, it's one thing within fellowship when you can't be, Okay, so God isn't asking you to be somewhere or doing something you can't do. But it's a whole other thing when you can and you won't. It's a whole other thing when you can be together with the brothers. And you can be together at a church gathering or a church for event, but you won't. And here's what the word of God would say to you. Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 23. <clears throat> he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another 
in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And we unpack that in our Bible study through the book of Hebrews, but consider the one another. Consider the significance of being together and the value that comes when we are together. And he says, don't forsake it. It's not that don't do something you can't. It's, hey, if you can, don't forsake it. Don't write it off. Don't pretend that being together with other believers, being under the, uh, the systematic teaching of the Bible perhaps, or together to sing together and worship together, come together to pray together, come together to encourage one another. Don't forsake it. Don't forsake it. <clears throat> Why? Well, we learned right in the beginning of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. Not good. We need to be together. We learned that word in the book of Acts. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And it has the depth of, of sharing in common. And when you're sharing in common, you're sharing together. It's not the same watching online, although that's needed sometimes. It's not the same. I mean, saying that online is my church now is like saying, well, I don't eat anymore. I just take vitamins. You know, no, you, that's, nobody does that. Nobody, you, you still eat. You, you need real nutrition. And on occasion, you have these supplements. You have some vitamins you take. That's great. They supplement the nutrition that you have taken in or maybe perhaps the lack thereof. But you can't just, well, I'll just go worship God uh, in the mountains all by myself. Well, you can, but not exclusively. And then, you know, the person that might say, and I, I was being uh, a little bit exaggerating to that, but the person goes, I'll just tie it to myself. Like, now you're, now you're making up doctrine. That's not possible. You don't tithe to yourself. Matter of fact, I mean, if you kind of think about it, Jesus said, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So how do you do that? Okay, I'm going to tithe to myself. Oh, but don't tell anybody left hand. You know, it's just, it's, you just start making, you, when you stay away from fellowship, you start making things up. And you start going your own way. Because who's going who's gonna to rebuke you? Who's going to challenge you? Who's going to encourage you? Who's going to question you? Who's going to pray for you? If you aren't together and you're by yourself, who's going to lay hands on you? When you're out by yourself and, and you're not a part of a fellowship, you've forsaken the gathering and you're, you're going out alone, then, then how will you obey the scriptures when it says, if there's any among you sick, call upon the elders. So that, that says that there's you and someone else. They can anoint you with oil and pray for you. The whole Bible is about community and togetherness unity and fellowship and just thinking about all the one another's so much that the bible has to say about us being together proverbs 27 17 says as iron sharpens iron so a friend sharpens a friend it was billy graham that said and i quote churchgoers are like coals in a fire when they cling together they keep the flame aglow but when they separate they die out and fellowship brings strength, power, unity. And the church gathering and the church family, whether it's a large church, small church, whether it's a church in the building or in a home, whether, whether it's a church in a hut or you know, gathering in the middle of, you know, perhaps underground or however you're gathering together, it's not good. Have you guys got it yet? It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. 
And we can't just relegate that to the marriage relationship with Adam. God is identifying Adam being alone, and it's not good. So notice with me in verse 19 again, it says, out of the ground, God formed all the beasts, every beast, every bird, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So here are all the animals coming by. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And as he's looking at him, he's looking at Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. You know, the Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, you know, they're necking, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. You guys on the radio, thank you very much for that groan. He's saying, look at all these animals. They have mates. They seem not to be alone. And God even knew Adam's need. And God brought that knowledge to Adam's heart and mind. And imagine, again, trying to put ourselves in, in Adam's place here the best that we can with our holy imagination. But you consider being in Adam's shoes, you're lonely. The animals around you aren't fulfilling to you, even as we see in verse 20, for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. The animals may have brought joy, may have brought fun, he names them, and, you know, hyper-intelligent man, of course, but there's a lack of fulfillment. And if we kind of put it into today's language, you know, imagine you're lonely, Adam, and God answers your prayer by, you know, you're kind of considering that you're alone, and so the answer to your prayer was that he says, okay, go to the Denver Zoo. And I want you to examine all the animals. Go for it. Find a mate suitable to you. And while you're there, name them. And so you're walking through the the zoo and you're scratching your head. You're like, birds? No, no, I don't. Okay, there you go. Mockingbird and bluebird, but there's nothing that's going to help me. And you you go to the reptile section and you're like, I don't want anything to do with that. The rhinoceros, the giraffes, all the different animals. And at the end, none of them bring fulfillment. And I believe God wasn't trying to frustrate Adam, but to teach him faith. And it just reminded me that, like, how many times that there are needs put before me and I don't necessarily see the lack of fulfillment as God wanting to build my faith. I usually respond a little impatient, a little frustrated. I don't like to wait. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not very good at it, although God has me in places of waiting, but I'm not very good at waiting on the Lord. I have a temptation always to become impatient. But it reminds me, and God has been faithful over and over again, and he'll be faithful to you because he's the same God today, yesterday, and forever. That when a need is brought to my mind and my heart, God isn't bringing a need to frustrate me. He's bringing a need to my mind because he wants to meet it eventually in my life. He wants to meet those needs. The Bible says that he's going to provide for all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That God wants to provide for those needs. I need to be careful not to identify my wants as needs because then I'll be really frustrated because I'll be looking for something from God that he never intends to fulfill. But on true needs, on, on true needs, God will fulfill the desire that he placed upon my heart and my mind. And another thing I want you to notice is that in Adam's singleness here, in Adam's singleness, he doesn't go through the garden looking for a mate. So that my illustration going to the Denver Zoo is not quite uh, an accurate illustration because God brought the animals to Adam. He didn't go looking for a mate. He didn't go searching, but rather he went to sleep. Notice in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh 
in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. He went to sleep. You know, I was thinking of sleep. It's one of the most vulnerable positions you are in life. It's one of the most dangerous places for you to be asleep. You're the most vulnerable. You, you aren't paying attention, especially if you go into the deep REM sleep, right? You're not, they, like, you're gone. You know, some of you, you have the, you're, we're so jealous of you because, like, as soon as you put your head on the pillow, you're gone. And it, we're, we're not hearing from you until the morning. You just have a deep, deep sleep. But you can, have you ever considered what, how vulnerable you are in your deep sleep? Where there's no self-protection, there's no ability, you, you're just resting. And I think that's what's here. I think it's literal sleep, but I also think it's a place of resting. It, it speaks to us symbolically of relying upon, waiting on, trusting in, and holding on to the will of God, just resting in him. And it was God's answer to Adam to create a helper comparable, to complement him. That's what he says. He says that he made that the rib, uh, which the Lord God had taken, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And who is this woman? She is, according to verse 20, a helper comparable to him. She too, Eve, you ladies, are too created in the image of God. You have the same value as men. You are not secondary or lower or somehow insignificant. And there's a fancy word, as this comes up in, in, in conversations, there's a fancy Bible word if you want to drop it on someone just to stop the argument, you can and you can say that men and women are ontologically equal. Ontologically equal. Now, you, you have to be careful because men and women are not equal in all ways. You know that. We're very different. Uh, we, we, we were made different. We have, we have different purposes and, and we have different body parts. And there, there's many differences upon us. However, ontologically... And, and that speaks of your nature, your very nature as a human being. We are absolutely 100% equal. But you know, there are women among us that are much smarter than us here right now. You're much smarter. You're, I'm not equal to you in smarts. Did you know there are also men here tonight, maybe watching or listening, they're much smarter and so in intelligence or in ability or in education, there's a lot of things that make us different and unique. But in the eyes of God, he loves us equally. There is no difference between us. And of course, that gets exploited in our culture today because our culture loves to use differences to diminish one another. That's not God's heart. God's heart is not to use your difference and my difference. I think of you know, if somebody had made a mention, you know, I'm, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk today. That's what I do for a living. I talk. Not very good, but I talk. And that's what I do. But some of you, some of you are like, well, I could never do what you're doing. I couldn't do that kind of talking. And, you know, that's not God's will for your life. But, but you, you can like fix an engine. Actually, you know what to fix in an engine. And, you know, these hands were not made to fix engines. And neither was this mine. I don't understand that stuff. There's things I'm just not good at. It doesn't make you better than me. It doesn't make me better than you, but we're very different. However, if I somehow make what I'm doing 
teaching God's word, the most important thing in the world, then automatically, because you don't do it, I diminish you. And you think, well, Ed, that's pretty important what you do teaching God's word. It is pretty important. But what you do is pretty important. Yeah, but Ed, what do you get? You get to teach the Bible and, and you get to minister to so many people with the Bible. Yeah, but do you know that you have access to people that would never listen to me? Like you have access to people that would never, ever turn on a radio station, walk through those doors of the church, or listen to some pastor. But maybe because you're a, you're a, you, you share a cubicle with them, or you're their boss, or they're your boss, they have to listen to you. And you have access to people that I could never have access to. And so you see now, together, as the body of Christ, we're all valued equally before the Lord, but because there's differences among us, see, the differences aren't used, there aren't, they aren't designed to diminish one another, especially between men and women. The differences between men and women were meant to be compatible together. That where I'm weak, you're strong. And where you're weak, I'm strong. And we're not to compete with one another. We're not to lord over each other. We're to serve one another. That's what the whole new covenant then comes. You know, Paul will tell the Philippians, hey, learn how to think of others more highly than yourself. So God says it right here. The value of male and female is so that we might be comparable to one another and we might complement one another and we might support one another. And you can expand that even in the broadest sense of you know, when you think of spiritual gifts and, and some gifts are, are th thought to be more important, you know, what's the most important spiritual gift? Well, I'll tell you what the most important spiritual gift is, the one you need in the moment. That's the most important one. So pray for it. Pray what God has for you right there in the moment. It's not, oh, you know, teaching's so important. No, not necessarily. Not if, the, not if the moment requires mercy, then you want to be merciful. You know, somebody that's hurting doesn't need a Bible study. They need a hug. They need ministry. It's like you could tell somebody comes in and he goes, oh, it's been such a hard week. Well, sit down. I've got an hour-long Bible study. I can teach you on how not to hurt in Jesus' name. No, man, just sit down for what you can do in five minutes. I wouldn't be able to do in 45 minutes if I exercised the gift of teaching, but you sat down and mercifully loved someone. They're comparable, compatible. Now, Notice in verse 23, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, call, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked. Again, another place of vulnerability. He went from sleeping to nakedness and vulnerability now with his wife. The man and his wife Notice in verse 25, and they were not ashamed. So it's not good to be alone. Needed a helper. Very few people, speaking to those of you that are single, very few people have a gifting or a calling to be single. Uh, and it's, it's not good for you to be alone. And even those that do have a calling to be single find that it can be very difficult at times, very challenging. But there was someone that God created in their humanity to come alongside and compliment Adam. This is from the beginning. From the very beginning, marriage has been defined as one man, one woman, one lifetime. You go, where do you get that? We, we just read it. 
Notice how the words that he uses, they were both naked, the man and his wife. Who is his wife? Eve. And who is Eve? Remember, Adam woke up and go, whoa, man. <laughs> I gave you a second chance. <laughs> and so here you have man and woman. And I know it's getting more challenging in our culture today as lines are being blurred and emphases are, you know, you would think the way that the media is today that the whole world is confused, but only people that are separated from God are confused. And they willingly are confused. They choose, as we said earlier, anyone that's in sin chooses to sin. They choose to blur the lines. They choose not to accept God's ideal. They, they choose to receive the life from God, but not the accountability to God. They'll choose, oh, I love life. Live your best life, you know. You only live once. They're all about life, but they're not about accountability to the creator of life. And, then, you know, before, we, we have to be careful because we were there. I was there until my mid-20s, my early 20s. That's how I lived my life. I was all into life myself. I was all into defining how life was to be. And I was all into having to deal with the consequences of my rebellious life toward God. Things did not turn around for me until I was born again. Period. There, there is no part Ed and part God. It was all God reaching me in the depth of the pit. Delivering me and putting my feet on a solid rock. It's only those that choose not to allow the definitions of God to define them, the limitations of God. It's hard to deal with limitations. And you're seeing it lived out in, right before our eyes. From the beginning, marriage, one, that, it's his ideal. Not everyone lives the ideal. Not everyone has a marriage, one life, one, one, one man, one woman. Sometimes it's through death. Sometimes it's through divorce and all sorts of things. Not everyone has that. But that's God's ideal. God's ideal isn't diminished because of the failure of man. God's ideal stands on its own. That's his desire. That's his thing. And so I want you to see that Eve was taken from Adam's side. We see that. It was Matthew Henry that said this. On occasion, I'll mention this in a wedding ceremony. But he said, and I quote, woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, from near to his heart to be loved. And it's the picture of Adam and Eve in this first marriage because there, it, it, points, it points to another bride that was formed from another Adam's side. Jesus is the final Adam, the last Adam, the Bible says. And it was on the cross that he hung where a spear was Placed, was placed in his side and a bride being formed at that time, the bride of Christ. And again, you see the parameters of marriage here. I'll just jot them down if you're taking notes, but marriage begins with a separation. Did you know that? Verse 24, marriage begins with a separation. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Separation, you have to leave. The, the principle is what? Leaving and cleaving. You have a new relationship, a new primary relationship where now the in-law relationship is secondary to your marriage. Your marriage is prime, priority primary. It starts with a separation. 
Marriage, secondly, is designed to be steadfast. Steadfast. Notice it says in verse 24, it says that they're to be joined, he's to be joined to his wife. There's a breaking of the cords, and then they're literally to be stuck together. That's what the word joined means. Joined together. Thirdly, marriage grows in intimacy. As it says here in verse 24, they shall become one flesh. One flesh. In marriage, you grow intimately, spiritually, emotionally, and it can be very challenging uh, to share even the most deepest, intimate parts of your, of your life and heart. So you grow in that together. And this as well, as they become one flesh, speaks of the sexual intimacy that is designed for marriage alone. It's to be enjoyed within marriage. And then finally in verse 25, marriage also includes an abiding transparency. They were both naked, the man and, their, and his wife, and they weren't ashamed they, were, they, did, they, weren't, they didn't make fun of one another. They didn't shame one another. There was some of the most sweet intimacy and vulnerability that's built upon trust that's built over time within marriage. So listen, church, no matter the way of the culture, from the beginning, it's been God's design. And you may just need to reaffirm that choice to follow God. It's been God's design. Marriage is defined right here in the beginning. And later on in, in the teachings of Jesus, you know, a lot of times when it comes to homosexuality, the LGBTQ community, and all of the things surrounding that, you'll hear all kinds of arguments that sound strong at the beginning, but they're not really that strong. And one of them is, well, you know, Jesus never condemned homosexuality, so therefore it's perfectly okay. Well, I would have to say that Jesus never did come out very directly and condemn homosexuality in the ministry that's been re reserved for us in the scriptures. I agree with that. There's no passage of scripture in the red letters that Jesus would then say in such a negative tone as it's being presented, you know, condemning homosexuality. He doesn't. You know what he does instead? He values and honors marriage. He defines it. He values it. He adds it. Why? Jesus didn't come to condemn, the Bible says. The question's asked wrong. Why would you expect Jesus to take such a hard stance against such behavior? Why would, you, why would you look for that, knowing the sensitivity of that particular sin and how sexual sin is? And, and even when they came to him testing him about divorce, he took them on a path so they, of self-discovery going, you know what? It's not God's will for that. That's not how God intended. That, that's not the Father's will. And even in other places, where the sin of homosexuality in 1 Corinthians and Leviticus, even when you see passages where that particular, that particular behavior, Romans chapter 1, is declared sin, it, it's not in a place of judgment or hatred. It's just a fact. I, I'm sure that the same people that would say, that's not a sin, I can live however I want, wouldn't like you ripping off their car. It's like, oh, you know, it's great. We live in great freedom, so steal from me. No, the Bible says stealing's wrong too. I'm sure they wouldn't be so happy when you lie to them to their face. Oh, lie to me. No, the Bible says lying's wrong too. Oh, and by the way, those that might emphasize this particular sin of the LGBTQ community and just make it the big deal in your life, you have to understand that sin is sin. And that sin is laid before some very common sins, even in the church. Look it up. Study it for yourself. Sexual sin is sexual sin. Adultery is just as much a sin as fornication. 
you know, sin when you're married, you have sin with someone else, you have sex with someone outside of your marriage, adultery. If you're single and you have sex with anyone, you're fornicating. That's equal. Those are things that we're all to stay away from. Those are things that we're to live a holy, righteous life. Those are things that we're to repent from and forsake in our lives. And who are we to take a stand of strong judgment? Who are we? We're those that are to introduce people to the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. We don't have to water down the gospel. Sin is sin. I have no problem sharing that. But you know, at times I have a problem remembering where God brought me from. Teenage parent. Taking advantage of a teenager in high school. Having free fornication for so long. Yeah, don't you remember it? Oh, I remember. I remember the people I hurt. I remember the child we brought in. Oh, I remember. See, we have to remember the goodness and grace of God. It will soften you as you're dealing with difficulties in our culture. It'll soften you because I hope as you're ministering to people, you want them delivered like you were delivered. And then, of course, there's always those who go, what, I wasn't as bad as you. Actually, you were, just in a different way. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what, what is it that you were closer to God than me? You know, as a sinner, you were one step ahead of me. All right, bro. Well, we were both going to hell, so I don't know what difference does it make. You're a step ahead of me or not. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're all lost. And may the Lord give us that sense of love and mercy and grace. Again, you might even confuse this whole thing of what's happening in our world. Well, what's happening in our world gets reduced down to your neighbor. That's all that God says. God says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and what? Love your neighbor. And so the people that we're talking, they have names and lives and families. Remember them. Pray for them. It's not the world. Oh, I can't believe it. These people. No. These people? What do you mean these people? This is someone's son, someone's daughter. Yeah, they're very important people. Created in the image of God. Men and women ontologically equal. Even as they're trying to find identity. You know, we take for granted so much that we have our identity in Christ. Not everybody's so solid in that. But we have our identity. God defines who we are and we accept that. We enjoy that. It's like, oh yes, I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. I'm a son of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. I've been washed and cleansed. My sins have been forgiven. But not everyone's so secure in that. So they seek to find identity in other things, in other behaviors, in other places. But there's forgiveness of sin. I think it was D.L. Moody. I says that He said that God saves to the gutter most. He'll go wherever he needs to do. He'll go wherever he needs to go. So yeah, as we talk about marriage, Jesus definitely affirms marriage. He teaches marriage. He hasn't, marriage hasn't changed from God's perspective. I mean, if there was no definition of marriage, then our culture wouldn't be trying to change it. Even that, even that, in that logical sense, our world trying to change it. Well, what are you changing? If there's no definition, then there's nothing to change. But there is, because God as creator, he put eternity in all of our hearts. And while we rebel against him, and while those apart from him rebel against him, they have, they, have God, they have the God knowledge of the outside creation. And they realize, I didn't create any of this. They have the God knowledge of their own conscience. That even someone rebellious and resistant to God knows the difference between right and wrong. Where did that come from? God placed it in us. 
And to the person that sees creation and understands that righteousness between good and evil, they'll follow. They'll follow that light. God will reveal Christ to them. And who knows, it might be you. It might be you that God uses to reveal. Now, when it comes to family, uh, I just want to remind you as well that we just finished not too long ago. For the very first time in the history of our church, I did a family series. And I covered, you know, husbands, wives, moms, dads, singles. Uh, I covered a lot of the roles. So if you're brand new, you're a new believer, or you're new in a relationship, you're new in a family, you need to learn how to deal with your in-laws and that. We covered all of that. It's on our app or our website uh, under the title Family Matters. And we went through one by one by one by one. Just what does the Bible have to say about those roles? And how can I apply that in my life? So if you want to grow in that, go ahead and get that study and begin to study it. So Father, we pray for your spirit to take your word and make it um, alive in us. And I do pray for those. We have family members and friends that are certainly in um, the LGBTQ community. And I know that some might even hearing this might be offended or might be hurt or might be mad, but uh, it's not my heart to hurt or offend anyone unwillingly. But man, when our sin is before us, it's very offensive. Knowing that we would need the cross of Christ is very offensive. We're just so convinced that our way is the right way. And so I pray for those that might be second-guessing their identity, Maybe they're even in our lives. Would you remind us of their humanity? Of their value before you, God? That we wouldn't see people for their sins, but rather for their humanity, their value? Would you forgive us for our judgmental, you know, we just get to that place where we we aren't allowing you, God, to fashion our hearts. It's so much easier to point the finger and yell and be mad and decry behaviors as hard as they are. Would you you teach us, Jesus, you were able to walk in the midst of great sin and yet the common people heard you gladly. It was just the religious people that were always mad at you. And I just want to, I want that to be perfected in my life, Lord. I want to be able to communicate the truth without compromise in a way that it would be received. So, Lord, help me to improve in that. Help our church to improve. Let us manifest your love without compromise. It's always that that thought of, well, I have to compromise. Nobody's compromising, Lord. No. But I want to be able to hear a person's story. I want to be able to Listen before I jump to conclusions. I don't want to jump to conclusions at all, Lord. I want to be led by your spirit like Peter. Fill with your spirit. Fill with your spirit. Fill with your spirit. So I just pray right now, God, as you're moving upon the hearts of those listening, that you would draw many to yourself. You're the only way to salvation. We pray that many would come to know you. And maybe tonight, that's you. You're in this room. You're here on the Wednesday of Holy Week. And you need to be born again. That's it. And maybe even in the message, I didn't write any sins down, you know, in my notes, but the sins that came up, the things that behaviors are like describing you. And you know, you've known that they've been wrong all along. 
and you want to forsake them, I want to invite you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ today, both near and far, that you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, that you would choose to repent of your sins and follow along the limitations that God has placed upon your life for your good. He tells them, don't eat of that tree. It's not good for you. It's not good for you. Don't do it. And so if you're here today and you say, Ed, I I want to follow Jesus. I need to be born again. Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. I want you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. I don't want you to leave without that opportunity to do that. And recognizing you guys might be out on on the radio or online. Uh, Obviously, I can't see you, but the Holy Spirit knows. And it's one of the reasons why we have these messages always going out. Because you never know who's listening, what that appointment is with salvation. And Wednesdays, you know, midweek Bible study is always precious to me. Guess where I got saved? On a Wednesday night. And I remember thinking, what in the world am I doing in church? Number one. And number two, what am I doing in church on a Wednesday night? And yet God had an appointment for me. So, so those of you that would respond to the invitation, the invitation to follow Jesus, you, you can pray and ask God to forgive you right now. You could say, God, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me. And I believe he rose again to save my soul. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. Help me. Help me to turn away from my sinful past and understand who you are, God, and what your, what your will is, what your desire is for my life. And Father, I know that so much activity takes place during Bible study, so much spiritual activity, so much spiritual warfare, so much rising of the flesh, so much conviction, so much encouragement. We just pray for those that will respond that they would join the forever family of God and today would be the mark, marking day. This would be the day they look back to of great and grand change, not only in their life, but for their family generational change would take place through the good news of the gospel that our sins can be forgiven. And may we leave here rejoicing in the forgiveness of our sins ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.